Recovery Elevator, episode 365. I also had this this bind of this forbidden fruit thing of like, I like doing this and I feel bad about it and I feel shameful about it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we have Joshua. He's from North Carolina and took his last drink on November 1st, 2020. Episode 365. If this podcast was released daily, that'd be a full year of podcasting. But since it's only one time per week, that's seven years of podcasting. My goodness. I want to say a huge thank you to you. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. We've almost had 10 million of them. Thank you for giving us your time. Thank you for listening. And I'd personally like to say thank you for helping me quit drinking and remaining sober. Uh, You can't see this, but there are 10 heart emojis on my screen right now. Thank you for all your support over the years. You guys are a huge part of this project called Recovery Elevator. We are building this project together, as in me and you. There's an Eastern teaching that says it's the teacher and the student that make the teaching, that both are needed and both are equally important. So again, thank you so much for listening. I love you guys. Yo, how cool is this? Recovery Elevator has partnered with Kala Brand Ukuleles. As some of you guys might know, I teach sober ukulele courses. This past Saturday was our second session and we are having a blast. I'm currently playing a Kala ukulele and it sounds great. Thank you so much, Joe at Kala Brands for getting me set up with this amazing sobriety tool called the ukulele. I highly recommend Kala Brand ukuleles and you can pick one up at www.kalabrand.com. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Okay, let's get started. Happy Valentine's Day, listeners. You can't see this, but there's a heart emoji on my screen right now. So this episode coincidentally falls on the date I wanted to cover this topic, which in short is love. Another word for that is connection and the infinite levels we can experience it. If you've been listening to this podcast or have been in the sobriety world for a minute, you've most likely heard the quote, the opposite of addiction is connection. Now I want to give credit where credit is due. This is not my quote. I first heard about it from Johan Hari's TED Talk Uh, titled, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Okay, so the opposite of addiction is connection. Of all the recovery slogans or sayings that I've heard, I think this one contains the most teeth and packs the biggest punch. It's all-encompassing. It's along the lines with the powerhouse quote, it's more about creating a life where alcohol is no longer needed, opposed to staying away from it. So the opposite of addiction is connection. That line is expansive. It's sweeping. It's something that Chuck Norris would say after punching a beer out of an alcoholic's hand. It points in such a bright direction, one where we place energies into expansion rather than dwelling or getting stuck in the story. This may be the big daddy of recovery quotes of our time, and I couldn't agree more. This six-word teaching is so powerful that it gives many the strength needed to take that first step just after hearing it alone. So in this episode, I want to unpack this quote a bit more, because if we take this teaching and add a little more guidance to it, the impact it can have on ourselves, as well as those around us, will change the trajectory of our species forever. And I stand behind that statement. I do. Again, the opposite of addiction is connection. But who are we connecting with? Upon hearing this, the normal response is, okay, I get it. I need to start connecting with other humans or other like-minded individuals who don't drink in my local area or maybe on an online sober forum. Don't get me wrong, all of that is great, but I do want to share a universal law with you. Eckhart Tolle covers this universal law in his book, The Power of Now and A New Earth, as well as every other spiritual teacher I've extensively read. In the quantum world, this universal law is called the Law of Consciousness. This law states that your outer world is a mirror or a reflection of your inner world, or the state of your inner environment is shown to you daily by the outside world. For example, if there is chaos within, you'll experience chaos in the outside world. If there is peace within, peace exists outside. 
This is because predominant inner beliefs dictate your outer reality. You are continually shaping the world around you as a result of your conscious and unconscious thoughts. Your outer reality is a mirror reflecting your inner world. So there's a lot of directions to take this, listeners, but I want to steer it back to the connection component. Again, who do we connect with? So if we are not connected within, as in we don't love ourselves, or we don't treat ourselves with respect, or we don't stand up for ourselves, or we're constantly beating ourselves up inside in our own voice, then that's the quality of connection we'll experience in the outside world. Listeners, make this inner connection your mission, your number one priority. You can't see this, but number one in my notes is underlined and in bold. Listeners, I don't want to simplify addiction or reduce it to its simplest form because yes, addiction can be complicated. But according to OCAM's razor, which states the simplest answer is usually the correct one, here's what I have to say. If we connect within, connect the brain to the heart, the heart to the soul, the soul to the conscious, and the conscious to the unconscious, then within time, your external alcohol-free life will sort itself out. Again, happy Valentine's Day. Heart emoji. This journey is geared towards falling in love with yourself. That's your mission. And I think that's why we're here. As Eckhart Tolle says, love is recognizing oneness in a world of duality. And duality is the illusion. There is no separation and the addiction is trying to show you how painful a life of separation or disconnection can be. So with that, we can't fight an addiction. We must listen. It's pushing us towards love, towards connecting within by showing us what's not working. So how do you connect within? How do you do this monumental task? Well, there are 364 episodes prior to this one that I'll give some sort of guidance and suggestions. But at the end of the day, as the Buddha says, we all have to become our own healers, our own shamans. You are tasked to find out what makes you happy, what makes you tick, what your song is. Everybody has a unique song. And here's another great definition of love that I've heard. Love is when you learn to sing another song. And if you don't internally know your song, then the outside world can't sing it. They'll always get it wrong. And then you'll have the inner narrative of, nobody understands me. And that's correct because you don't know you. In addition to connecting within, and this is the most important, the opposite of addiction is connecting with other human beings to your food, to animals, pets, the mountains, the ocean, the stars, the wind, to music, to the plants in the backyard. That external list is infinite, but you first must be connected within. So all of this is a work of progress, of course, and here's my suggestion. In your recovery portfolio, try to make it about a 50-50 split with internal and external work. For example, let's say you have one hour today to dedicate to your recovery. Let's do maybe 30 minutes could be towards meditation, journaling, playing the piano. This is internal work. And the other 30 minutes could be connecting in a sober forum. Maybe it's Cafe RE. Maybe it's a Marco Polo group. Maybe it's going to an AA meeting. This would all be external. So that's the 50-50 split I recommend. You might be saying, yo, Paul, how is playing the piano internal work? Your fingers are playing an external instrument. Well, this is how I see it. You can only connect with your inner self in the present moment. When we learn an instrument or to play a song, we don't flip to the last page of the sheet music to play the last measure or note. You have to be in the moment when playing an instrument. So it's the journey and not the destination. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Do your absolute best to find love. If you can't find it outside, that means there's an absence of it inside. Now, before we hear from Odette and Joshua, let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters. And as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, 
Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a wonderful introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Joshua to the show today. Joshua, how are you? Hey, it's a mixed bag, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. How are you? Same. Uh, a lot to be grateful for and a lot that is hard right now, but I know that that's the way that it is for a lot of our listeners out there. So I'm grateful that we're here and let's get right to it, Joshua. When was the last time you had a drink? I finished drinking on October 31 of 2021. That's my son's birthday. So I will always remember your sober birthday as well. <laughs> Yeehaw, Halloween helps too. Yes. Um, all right. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? What do you do for fun? And just a little bit about yourself, Joshua. Sure. Thank you. Be glad to. I am in northern central North Carolina near Winston-Salem in the country here in Stokes County. By the time this airs, I'll be 36. I have a birthday on the 16th. Um, I am an optician, uh, nationally certified and no, that is not a doctor. That would be an optometrist. Uh, so an optician is kind of a pharmacist for glasses. So I, you know, sell people, I help people see well and look good is what I do. So I'm, I'm basically a merchant of confidence, um, is how I see that. And my real passion is in music and that gets to the fun part. And I've, I've always had a hard time separating fun from, from work, which has goods and bads to it. But, uh, you know, I've done music professionally at different points, teaching and gigging and all that, and have eventually landed in a place, thank you, COVID, of uh, doing it very much on the side, doing a lot of online teaching and, and network building, and uh, leaving the gigs, live gigs, to a time when that might feel a little bit safer. So I live here in uh, rural Stokes County near Winston-Salem, Wake Forest University, for reference. And I'm here with my now fiance, uh, Kendra, who is amazing and has been tremendously supportive in all ways, including and in me deciding to uh, live a life free of alcohol. So I'm tremendously grateful to her and to Cafe Ari, who has also been instrumental. Well, I'm grateful for her too. You know, it, it is really rough when the people that we are directly living with and sharing our lives with uh, kind of don't see eye to eye with us and it, it's hard. So I'm just really hard to hear that you do also have some support at home where you're at, where your feet are at. And yeah, I'm happy that, that you're here. And Joshua, in terms of your relationship with alcohol, you know, tell us a little bit about when that started. When did you realize that things were kind of going south or that alcohol wasn't allowing you to just pursue the type of life that you wanted and what got you on the path of quitting and being here with us today? Well, I'll start at the end with what you just said, which was realizing that alcohol was not helping me lead the kind of life that I wanted. And I'll get back to that, I'm sure, once I get through a little bit of the narrative. But to start at the end, for anybody who listens to this podcast and doesn't end up listening to the whole thing, just know that for me, the negative reinforcement of should thinking never got me anywhere closer to an alcohol-free life. Knowing how bad it was for me, knowing how it was making me, you know, slow, lazy, fat, and stupid, <laughs> knowing how it was hurting my relationships, you know, that all helped me feel bad. It was great at that, um, but it never helped me get closer to an alcohol-free life, not for more than, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks at the very most. So focusing on what I wanted out of my life, what I want out of my life and really going to an honest place about, is this helpful or unhelpful? Even though that answer was obvious, really focusing on where I wanted my life to go was, was the thing that this time around anyway, knock on wood, has made a difference. Um, so I'll start with that. Uh, as far as my story, hopefully some people can relate. I was you know, born and raised here in rural 
North Carolina. I have a lot of strong family connections in this area. Very solid family. Uh, have lovely parents who are still living in their early, uh, just turning 70. Two older brothers. So I was the youngest. I was the baby. I was the follower, a longer and lived most of my life kind of in that, that way, kind of a lot of what I call hand-me-down living, which of course, if you're a younger child, you know what that means when it comes to clothes, but you also may know what it means in terms of, you know, I wasn't used to thinking very headstrong or thinking about what I really wanted. I was more just kind of having things handed down to me. Uh, it doesn't mean I was a victim. It just means that's how my brain and my DNA and raising kind of combined to make me the person that I was. And as far as alcohol, you know, it wasn't anything crazy. I was, you know, I had my first drink that I remember. It was like a Zima at some <laughs> party, some camp, it was camping sleepover that my mom to this day will bring up how she never should have let me go to that party. And she was correct. But, you know, it was just kind of the casual, normal, quote unquote, you know, high school here and there. And then I had a couple of my best friends were uh, very into uh, another mind altering substance. It's very common besides alcohol. Um, but of course, alcohol was involved too. And so it was kind of the what I still consider relatively normal, you know, here and there drinking. Um, and there was always peer pressure involved for me. I was, um, my parents are both teachers and I was very much a good kid. That was a big part of my identity. Some parts of that are good and some parts are limiting, but uh, what it meant was that I really, really did not want to do anything that would make me feel bad or feel shame or feel like I might be in trouble. So um, it was a lot of wanting to belong, I think. And that is common, I think, to many people who end up having problems with drinking. So you have to kind of have this combination of uh, wanting badly to belong, being more willing to hurt myself than I was to disappoint other people. Um, a lot of codependency angles in there. And that, again, combined with the sort of lack of direction for myself, sort of meant that I often took the path of least resistance. I can obviously say a lot more, but I'll pause there in case you are, uh, have a way of reining me in. No, you know, it's it's very interesting to hear conversations that are, I don't know what English word best describes it, but, you know, it's the, we had a great upbringing. Your story is very similar to mine, but there is this codependency that just arises. And I share your childhood in the sense of, you know, I would have rather keep everyone happy than maybe honor what I was feeling in the moment. And, you know, there was this enmeshment of myself with others. And it's interesting because, you know, even though re revisiting this and going back to therapy, nobody ever told me you have to keep other people happy to earn love. And somehow I made up this story. So I'm always very curious in terms of like origin stuff. And for the, for some of us, I don't know what happened later in your life, but like, I don't have the stereotypical trauma or the tragedy or tragic thing that happened, but somehow we fall in the same trap of people pleasing of, you know, no boundaries, not respecting ourselves, not honoring our feelings. And it's just crazy how many of us who struggle with addiction kind of, I don't know if it happened to you, but feel like this whole problem doesn't fit in with how we were raised. The whole problem of drinking? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, that's why I'm often skeptical when, you know, there's a lot of uh, well-intentioned addiction talk and I'm sure much of it is much better informed than I am. I'm not an expert. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist, any of those things, but when people want to reduce it only to addiction, it's really just a response to trauma. I'm like, not, not always, <laughs> you know, like there, obviously there are a lot of cases where that is true and we all have tra micro traumas of different kinds. And you know, there were, there were hard things that happened for me growing up, like there are for many people. And later there were much harder things that happened. Uh, but, you know, I would have found my way to drinking no matter how perfect it was. I really, I really believe that for myself. So, you know, I'm not here to get into a, a nature nurture kind of discussion on that, but it's just, I just think that it's, well, I'll put it this way. So in college, I studied a lot of things, including I was a religious studies major. So I studied a lot of Quakerism because I was at a Quaker school and a lot of Tibetan Buddhism. And I've always been interested in big questions about meaning and, you know, where we're going and all that kind of fun stuff. And, you know, there's a, a famous story in, in Buddhism, essentially about there's a man who's been struck by an arrow and he wants to know everything about the arrow. Well, who made it? What kind of wood is it made out of? What was the velocity at which it was shot? What could I have done differently to avoid having been shot by this arrow? And the guru, you know, the Lama teacher essentially says, why don't we get the arrow out? And then you can discuss and philosophize all that you want. 
about why. So that's kind of where I got to is because uh, that's another habit and trap that people with compulsive behavior issues often fall into because we often are also overthinkers is we think, oh, if I can just figure this out, why I drink, then I will be able to solve it. Maybe that's true for someone. I'm not one of those people and I've never met anyone who is. Yeah. And I want to just, we're we're kind of going off on a tangent, but this is very interesting because Buddhism and what I'm about to say have nothing in common. Yet the thing that I I'm learning right now through this therapy approach called ACT, which is new for me, it's acceptance and commitment therapy is exactly Mm -hmm. the point that you're sharing, which is, you know, instead of focusing on either the solution or the pain or anything else that could be helpful, one thing to do that isn't helpful is do exactly that and want to just know everything and want to have the answer to all of the questions. Why am I like this? Which is where I found myself trapped for a long time. And I still do sometimes, to be honest with you, is like, why? I want to know exactly why and what event it was and what little thing in my childhood it was or what big thing, whatever. But it's like, it doesn't really matter (laughs) at the end of the day. It doesn't really matter. No, it might be said if there is a reason, if there is a blueprint, it might be satisfying to discover, but it doesn't help us stay alive, you know? Exactly. And it won't make, yeah. And it won't make the problem go away. Like the arrow was still going to hit him regardless. So it, yeah, it is interesting. And I will let you get back to your story. How did the drinking start progressing and when did it start becoming an issue for you? So I am, I'm not currently an AAer, but I did spend quite a bit of time in AA and learned a lot of nice, helpful things there. And one of the things that one of the old time speakers said at uh, one of the last meetings I went to was, if you're sitting in this room, I guarantee that alcohol did something for you before it did something to you. So it's important to talk about the quote unquote good things, the things that drew us to it, because otherwise we just feel like these completely pathological, like broken people who are doing the thing that when people who don't have a problem say, well, why don't you just stop? Obviously this is bad for you. Well, you have to understand the why in there that I did something for you. Uh, so I'll talk about a couple of my euphoric experiences early with alcohol that truly I was, I was probably chasing all along afterwards. Um, the first was the first time I actually got drunk and that was with my two older brothers at Guilford college. And, uh, they have a student led festival there every year called serendipity. And back in the day, it was really epic and, and, and quite amazing. And they had a uh, uh, legendary reggae band toots and the Maytals play at Guilford college, the small liberal arts college in, in North Carolina. And I went and my brother, Ben had brought a 12 pack of Saranac and I drank God knows how many, and it surely didn't take many for me at that time. And, you know, I was hanging out with my brothers who I idolized and enjoyed spending time with. And I was at this party. It was all the romance, all the things, all the things that, you know, culture tells you alcohol is going to be. It actually was, you know, it was, it was awesome. You know, I can't lie about that. And I apparently eventually blacked out. And luckily I was with them who I was safe with, you know, but they told me later that we had played card games where I just drank and didn't even remember it, you know, stuff that seemed funny at the time, which now is, is, I mean, it's still kind of funny, but it's like, it's pretty, pretty messed up, you know, but again, I was safe with them luckily, but you know, it was, it was an incredible time. And I walked away from that. Not, I, again, my, I'm not, I am not what I consider a hardcore alcoholic and that's not a value judgment or anything. I'm, I feel lucky, but I've never uh, developed the extreme physical dependency where, you know, immediately I was kind of seeking that high right over again, but somewhere in my subconscious, it kind of lodged in there that, okay, there, there is an access point to this kind of experience and it is alcohol. So then I'll, I'll talk about a second time, which was different and more troubling. One of my friends, my high school friends, Jordan, he was one of the ones that, that pushed the other things and, uh, and who I was uh, very much in a codependent relationship with. Of, he was the main character and I was the supporting uh, role and kind of just like went along with whatever was happening. And so he was uh, one night, he was on a mission to get some, some booze and he got some rum and, uh, you know, he gave me half of it or whatever. And I got home and by myself. Uh, mix it with some kind of fruity something or another and up in my room by myself with my guitar, you know, drink God knows how much, much more than I ever could have if it weren't, you know, mixed with all this fruity garbage. Mm -hmm. And for, I don't know, 20 to 45 minutes before I passed out, I had 
a totally euphoric experience that was, you know, an AA that talk about for a lot of people drinking early is, is a, a, actually a spiritual experience. And it felt that way for me. Um, I felt, you know, this, this euphoria and this escape and this uh, complete presence with what I was doing, which is ironic, granted, you know, how unpresent we are when we're drinking. And it was amazing until it wasn't. And, uh, you know, I dreamt that night that I had dropped my guitar and that the, the top of it, the head of the guitar had broken off. And then I woke up and uh, to spare the gory details, I woke up and quickly realized that the night had ended badly. I'll just say it was, uh, it was a sight and it was awful. And then I dealt with the shame of, you know, cleaning up after myself and trying to hide it from my dad who eventually found out. And uh, so then there was a shame component to it too that fed into it. So there was always, um, I don't know if this relates to what you were saying about the growing up and the, the behavior not fitting in or feeling bad about it or whatever, but I also had that element with my drinking of that. Um, even though my parents drank a little bit, they drank consistently, but not a lot. I never saw them drunk. I know that they inherited a lot of negative feelings about alcohol culturally, and I had inherited those too. So then I also had this, this bind of this forbidden fruit thing of like, I like doing this and I feel bad about it and I feel shameful about it. So again, that's a lot to unpack there, but those were some of the first experiences I think that that set me up for uh, seeking that kind of experience. It sounds like it was more of a from self starting to wonder after these events that you shared, which I'm grateful because they are, I mean, it, it's a lot and, and shame's a big component of these kind of backpacks that we're carrying around. And I'm just happy that you're able to kind of in sharing, let that go a little bit, but was after those events you know, it sounds like you were the one thinking this may be a problem. I should stop drinking. Like, where was your head at in terms of the actual the substance? Was it I should take a break or I should quit drinking? How connected to the quitting versus, oh, I should lay low with this was kind yes. of like your conversation at. So at that point, you know, I brought up those experiences because I think psychologically they were very impactful, but they did not constitute a big portion of my life. I was, you know, those were that was two experiences. I can't name another like big deal alcohol experience for a few years afterwards. So, um, so at that point, I'm not thinking I have a problem. It was more just like, Oh, I overdid it. You know, I feel bad. I don't want to do that. You know? Right. Um, so because it wasn't so frequent. So to kind of fast forward, you know, through my college years, I drank little, but when I drank, I drank a little bit differently and weird. Um, I remember there was, there was a hiding component in it also. So actually right before I went to college, I went to a, a summer program uh, here in North Carolina called Governor's School. And I remember on my, there was a break halfway through and on the way back, I, you know, smuggled some of my dad's yinglings out of his cooler into my pack to take, you know, not even enough to get drunk, but there was just this kind of like thrill part of it. And again, also feeling bad. And then I would, I would not find buddies who drank and try to drink to have fun. I would like drink one or two before I went to a class, you know, just like, weird stuff. So that's where I, I began to connect with the medicating portion of, of drinking, that there was a big, big anxiety and depression uh, medication aspect of what I was doing there. That was a, that was a theme later. I remember uh, my freshman year of college living with a roommate who he was a quote unquote normal drinker. He would not drink during the week. And on the weekend, he would go and party and get drunk and, and then he'd put it down. You know, It just wasn't a thing, but he kept a bottle of whiskey in the room and I would just like sneakily you know, get the, take these sips of it during the day. And it was like this rush, this thrill, this like, oh boy, I'm kind of like feeling better, you know, cause I was always contending also with depression issues and anxiety and stuff like that, that wasn't diagnosed at the time. So that was a big component. It didn't start to answer your question. It didn't start to be, you know, something I probably would consider problematic until, or at least something I realized thought might be problematic until the time around my separation and then divorce in late 2013, to early 2014, my ex-wife had said, you know, brought up more than once that she felt like this is kind of a problem and she was hypersensitive to it because her mother, you know, she was, my ex-wife was an Al-Anon, her mother had a drinking problem of sorts. And I just thought, well, this is ridiculous. I don't even drink that much, which was true. I really, you know, I, I had one or two beers most nights and often I didn't have any at all. Um, but I think she saw that there was something different about the way that I drank or the function that I had for me. And that I was more comfortable doing it by myself. And it was more of an escapist thing than it was a social thing. I think that kind of triggered her. So at that point, she was saying I might have a problem. I am thinking that's ridiculous. I don't drink that much, you know. But once she left, you know, we separated, she moved out. And so then I was 
unchaperoned, as I'd like to put it, you know. So I had been spent most of my 20s. We got together when I was 19. We were together till I was, I don't know, 26, 27. So I had this real feeling of being cheated because that relationship also was one where I, there were several times where had I made my feelings the most important, I would have ended that relationship many times. And again, that's not victimhood. I made those choices. That was me. It's just, that is true. That is how my, how I felt at that time. And so when the relationship eventually ended, uh, I think there was a lot of built up resentment. Of course, something they talk about in AA a lot, there was a lot of built up resentment around feeling, okay, I've missed out on what was supposed to be this fun time, this whole narrative of my twenties being this, you know, happy go lucky, you know, freewheeling exploratory time. And so then I just started drinking a lot more. I was by myself. Uh, I was even though the ending the relationship was the right move, I was, you know, devastated. That's a traumatic thing to go through. And um, then I started, you know, going out and partying hard, you know, like I was for, for me partying hard um, because I never had that huge of a tolerance, but I would be going out two, three, four nights a week as often as I could. And just going downtown and drinking beers until it was closing time basically and walking home and just this combination of being, in this emotional devastation, but also in this liberation that was both of which were very real um, because I did feel extremely relieved to be out of this relationship. Uh, so that's where it started to really ramp up and elevate and then turn into kind of what I consider my, my drinking problem years, um, not just the foundation, but the sort of active on again, off again, merry-go-round between roughly 2014 and you know October of 2021. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that it was both liberating and like medicating because I do think that this unwillingness of our brains to just accept that opposition can exist <laughs> inside of us and inside of our experience really makes things complicated for us. You know, you were going out and drinking and kind of reclaiming, quote unquote, what had been taken away from you and also medicating the loss, the grief, like all of this. And I, I wonder, because you were going out while you were, you know, going through this chapter of your life, did that almost, I don't know, justify the denial of, you know, I'm going out, I'm going out to bars, I'm not just getting hammered at home by myself? Or at this point, were you also doing the trend of having a few before you even left, like still continuing this like secretive, isolative pattern? even though you were going out or were you just going out and doing it with people, even though you were obviously coping? Yeah, it was a little of both. And thankfully for me, this goes back to the tolerance thing. I was never really a liquor person, you know, 49 times out of 50 when I drank, it was beer. Uh, so luckily it didn't get that. It's a lot harder to get to that, you know, oblivion kind of place with just beer, but I, I don't really know the answer to your question. I don't remember, you know, like doing a lot of pre-gaming or something. I don't really remember my lifestyle that well at that time. And it's actually not because I was, you know, just wasted or something all the time. Cause I wasn't, it was just a, a traumatic, difficult time. There was a job loss in there and just all kinds of stuff going on. So I don't think of it in terms of like the, the pre-gaming per se, like, Oh, I better make sure I get enough of buzz on. So it's not so expensive to get drunk at the bar, but I'm sure that I had, I kept beer around and I probably had, you know, a couple just in general in the evening before I would do anything. So yeah. Um, it was all it was all mixed together. The escape, the medication, the claiming of whatever, you know, dubious independence I was doing, all that stuff was all mixed up. And as you say, there's motivations are seldom pure in one direction or another. Yeah. And you did say that after this, you for the next few years up until your October date, you were going with these on and off periods. So did you enter the cycle where it would get so bad that you would say, I'm going to try not to drink or what was the approach of this on and off? Were you actually yeah. trying to quit or were you just kind of taking breaks? It was very seldom. It was not into a, to a point of I'm quote unquote trying to quit or even thinking about taking breaks until maybe 2016. So I was in the pattern of that, you know, I was not an extreme drinker. I wasn't a blackout drunk. I was that daily beer drinker who, you know, what was, two beers a day became two to three, became two to four, became 
three to seven, became, you know what I mean? And then the occasional, oh my God, did I really drink eight beers, which eventually turned into, oh my God, did I really drink 15 beers in a day? You know, that kind of thing. So it was this very gradual pattern. And it, what I, I didn't think of it necessarily in terms of, oh, I've got to quit or I have a drinking problem, but I was aware of how it was affecting me. So back to sort of a narrative place with this teaching guitar lessons, I was working for myself doing that. And now we're talking in the 2015 to 17 kind of range. I'm working in a coffee shop early in the morning to support myself, you know, driving to work, doing that for six hours, driving half an hour home to take care of my dog, driving back to the city to teach guitar lessons for four hours, sometimes playing gigs that same night. So it was a very grueling lifestyle that I had, had chosen to be able to do more of what I wanted to do and playing gigs often and uh, tending a bar at a, like a beer house on the weekends. Um, so I was working six or seven days a week. And uh, oddly, the, the beer was, of course, it was slowing me down, but in the short term, it would f- serve as kind of an energizer, um, which is also something I learned, you know, in AA and therapy and stuff that for people who are inclined towards having drinking problems, a lot of times this, you know, alcohol can have this energizing effect, whereas most people say, oh God, if I have two glasses of wine, I'm ready to go to bed, you know? So I would get home from the teaching, what have you, and, you know, try to hold off on drinking beer as long as I could. And then I would you know, drink however many I drank and be up late. And then because I'm a musician, I'm a night, night owl, you know, so I'm drinking until one, one in the morning, getting up at five 15. Sometimes it wasn't always that bad, but often it was, and, you know, and then I'm going to work and just feeling like garbage, you know, the, the trite, you know, sick and tired of feeling sick and tired that was starting to happen and getting more frequent, this, this little incessant, clouded voice in the back of my head that's just like this you can't you can't keep this up you know and there was a bit of a watershed moment Um, it didn't actually change my behavior yet but in my in my story I tell myself there was a watershed moment I was playing in a bluegrass band for about five years and they were uh, big partiers and a big part of that experience was a big part of progressing my internal story of my identity as a drinker you know I don't have a drinking problem I'm, I'm a drinker I like to drink which I hadn't really identified that way before because these guys are, you know, good old country boys that had been playing under the same guys since they were in high school, you know, for 20 plus years. And this is just what they did. And they would, you know, do crazy things. They would usually the driver wouldn't, but they'd drink to and from shows in the car. You know, they would of course drink at the show. They would, uh, it was just all part of the deal. And again, there's this story. I didn't expect this to be such a theme. There's a story, there's this tension of, those part of me going, feeling very liberated and like, this is kind of awesome, not drinking and driving, but the, the rest of it, the party lifestyle, while at the same time feeling very uncomfortable with it. And there was one time, this watershed I'm talking about, they were about to drop me off at the house. I'd been riding. I didn't have to drive. So I'd been like drinking beer the whole way home. Uh, yes, in the car. <clears throat> and they were about to drop me off. And I'd said something, I don't know what. And uh, the leader of the band, he kind of has one of this holding court moments just for a moment and talks the whole card. He goes kind of chuckles and he goes, (laughs) he's still in the fun part where he doesn't realize he has a problem. And I can tell you truly up until that point, I had never thought that consciously that I had a problem or even might have a, I, I thought that's stupid. That's crazy. You know, obviously I'm just doing what you guys are doing and y'all all seem to be fine. Right. Uh, so, but that, that would have been in that 2015 era. And so that was the beginning of even a seed of like, this might be a quote unquote problem at that point. It sounds like he recognized himself in you, which is pretty powerful. Yes. Yes. It's a good way to put it. Wow. Yes. And I mean, it, and it is a watermark moment, of course, because you, you got called out basically. Do you recall how you felt like the emotion did you, were you like bit. embarrassed? I got caught. Like, how, what did you feel? No, I think I don't think I identified with it enough to feel embarrassed. I was more just like, that's funny. You know, there was a little <laughs> part of me that there, there was a tiny bit of like, wait, do I, you know, um, but I didn't feel embarrassed. I didn't feel uh, hurt or attacked because again, it wasn't the, the, also the comment wasn't made in a judgmental way. Right. Um, I think because that, that guy and the guys in that band for the most part, they were the kind of, you know, I, I don't even want to use a term functional alcoholic because I don't know them. I don't know how drinking feels to them. Um, they're kind of drinkers, 
you know, that, that, that's sort of how I would put it. People who they know, and I know from talking to them, they know that alcohol has held them back. They know that it's not helping them live their best lives, but they've just, they've just taken the deal. You know, this is my lifestyle. This is what I do. I'm not getting drunk really, except occasionally, you know, when it's quote unquote appropriate and drinking is just, it's what we do. You know, it's part of what I do and it's, and it's okay. It's not it, anytime it's gotten to be sort of unmanageable. I've gotten it back in check, you know, the justifying kind of drinking. And so I was with people who I really didn't feel that they were judging themselves about it. So I didn't feel judged when they identified me. It was almost more like an initiation. It was almost like he's one of us now. Yeah, that makes total sense. And like you're saying, you know, there are those types of people where they're not trying to do what a lot of us are doing. And I'm speaking for myself where you kind of want to have your cake and eat it too. They're just like, this is part of the deal. This is what I'm doing. I know how it makes me feel. It's not, they're not trying to pretend like it works for them. They're just like, this is how it is. And and I kind of appreciate that. I was one of those who was trying to pretend like there was no negative effects about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. The the insanity that it brings you to to try and say, because I, I can't remember what exactly it was you were saying earlier, but you were talking uh, in different words about binaries or maybe about that, that we can have mixed feelings, essentially. Yes. Um, and I think that's that's part of the problem. And I'm tremendously grateful to AA. I may end up using AA again for my recovery. And we can get to that part of the story if you want to. But uh, I do think that for me, you know, you have to keep the history of AA in, in mind when you uh, when you look at how binary uh, an AA approach to, to drinking or not drinking is. You know, it was formed in a time when there was no before AA, there actually was no AA and there was no understanding of this at all. It was just you're a bad person with no self-control, you know, and so the degree of how bad it must have had to get for early AAers to seek help and to risk that ostracization was intense. So early AA people were freaking serious alcoholics. I mean, we are some jokes, junior league drinkers compared to, <laughs> you know, seriously, most, even, even the most extreme stories I hear on the podcast are like nothing compared to the stuff, you know, the early big book people stuff. So when people are overly critical of AA in terms of, oh, it's too all or nothing, I think what it is helpful to think of that context of where AA came from. I hear what you're saying. And yeah, it yes. makes total sense. And my, I mean, my dad is one of those AA veterans and even everything or not everything. He loves the podcast and supports Recovery Elevator. But half of the stuff that we talk about on here, he's like, you guys don't know what you're doing over there. And like, sure. <laughs> it's like right. very confused about this. Yeah, like this non-extreme, non-radical, less framework. And, and yeah, it, it's just different. It is. And so it's been helpful to me to, you know, to look at the science too. None of this helped me, cured me overnight or anything, but to look at it and just to acknowledge things that culturally we're not ready to acknowledge. Alcohol is addictive, period, for everyone. It There are some people who I'm sure could drink every day and never become a problem. We're all wired differently, but sugar is addictive. Nicotine is addictive. You know, does that mean there aren't people who are truly alcoholic by their own definition? Of course not. And that also makes me mad when people want to go so far to the other extreme that they're saying, oh, there's really no such thing as an alcoholic. You know what? No, we get to define our own experience. And there are people who absolutely are alcoholics because that's how they experience life. For me, it was helpful to go to the less binary place. Um, and my therapist, I've been working with the same therapist since 2015. He's helped me a lot with this. He's a, he's a 30 plus year AA veteran, and but has a very gentle, holistic kind of approach to things. And when I would get into these binaries of like, oh my God, I got to stop, you know, or just this, this all or nothing thinking, which never worked out for me. Mm -hmm. He would reframe things as helpful, less helpful, yes. you know, which also can bring some humor when you're like, okay, drinking so much by yourself that you wake up in the shower, sitting down with cold water running over, you're having thrown up before you passed out. That doesn't sound as helpful. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. So, yes. So you know, so looking at things more in that scale kind of place helped me. And that also helped me in terms of thinking about harm reduction when I knew it was a problem, but I, I, I knew I wasn't ready to quit. And I, I know that I wasn't going to quit until I was going to quit until I was ready. So I didn't take that as a license to go crazy, but I also thought, okay, what can I focus on being safe? You know, if I'm going to drink, if I'm not at this place of being ready to quit, uh, how can I do it more safely for myself, more responsibly? 
so yeah, just thinking for whoever's listening, if you're still drinking and you're in this place of, oh God, why am I still listening to this? I uh, don't want to admit I have a quote unquote problem with a capital P, you know, it, it doesn't have to be about that. It can be about what Odette said earlier about, is this helping me live the life that I want to live or not? Uh, only you know the answer to that. Yeah, you know what, it's, I'm gonna go back to this, because it is what I'm currently working on it. And that initial question, I've changed it. And that's the question that you answered of is it giving you the life that you want in this ACT therapy stuff that I'm really diving into, there is this, it's all about thoughts and how we label them as good or bad thoughts and how much we fuse to them or defuse from them. Mm. And the whole I'm very similar to you. And I just wanted like all or nothing. And that's a lot of us. So the whole thought process of, okay, I'm having this thought instead of all the judgment, categorizing all this stuff. If I act according to what this thought is telling me, will I be closer to the life that I want, the person I want to be, the yeah. mom I want to be, whatever, you can fill in the blank. But that is so helpful because it is not that extreme side, which is what you're talking about. And I really just appreciate you sharing about harm reduction too, and really being ready to quit and just really having that support from your therapist who is an AA guy, but kind of knew that he needed to match where you were at in order for you to make your own breakthroughs. I think that is so important. And is there anything specific that happened in October on Halloween that made you feel ready that you were going to quit? And can you tell us about that chapter? Yes, there is, but I'm going to start before that. And I know I've gotten really end up, so I'm going to go, you know, highlight mode here. Uh, so July 4th, July 4th of 2017 was the first time that I said, I'm going to go to AA. And I was at a concert here in Winston-Salem and the performer here at Gales, he's very public in his sobriety, was celebrating one year clean, clean and sober. Of course, I was at this concert drinking as much beer as I possibly could without being sure that I was being unsafe to drive. You know, I was in that tension of, God, I want to drink more. This sucks. And so I identified with him and I decided to go to AA. And then I was in and out of AA until January of 2018. Uh, I think I went in three different times with different false starts. And on my birthday in January uh, 2018, I had a, a horrible, incredibly painful drunken night, which was great until it was horrible and hung over all day. One of those stories managed not to drink for 10 days for two weeks or something on my own. Finally got back to AA and that started my for real AA journey for a year and a half. And I was also in an extremely difficult, not particularly healthy relationship. And so I was also using AA meetings as a way to escape my life. And so I did that for a year and a half or so. And lo and behold, when I got out of the extremely stressful relationship, I didn't feel like I needed as much of that. And I got away from AA and, you know, six, you know, a year of heavy AA, six months of no AA. And of course I, I drank again. And so from then until now, it'd been something I've kind of, I sort of made the deal, you know, as I put it, I, I made the peace. I didn't like what it was doing to me. I didn't like what it was doing to me financially. I knew it was holding me back in every aspect of my life. I knew that I got myself into situations, including yes, arrests, that I, even if I wasn't doing anything egregious, things I wouldn't have been involved in, wouldn't have done if I hadn't been there. So it was on again, off again. And then as far as recently leading up to the quitting, quitting again, knock on wood, as I like to say, I finished drinking. I didn't quit because I, I quit every time I set the can down, you know, but I picked back up again. So I finished drinking October 31 and leading up to that, I did meet um, my wonderful sweetheart, Kendra, or connected with her. We'd known of each other. We, we connected in May of this year. And for the first part of that relationship, drank a lot. We partied. We were having a great time. Just the two of us. It was safe. Um, a lot of wonderful experiences making music together. And that didn't require the alcohol, but that was part of it. Um, but if I could, if I had a dollar for every time I had said to her at one point or another, you know, I really need to quit drinking, you know, I'd have at least a dozen dollars. You know? And that's, that's a lot to be saying to someone in such a short period of time, you know, five months time or less. So it'd been, there'd been a few of those periods, the, you know, anywhere from two days to a couple of times a week or more. And many, many, many mornings of waking up with the head pounding at three in the morning, because you have the sugar crash from the booze and, oh my God, I can't keep doing this. And then the clarity, no, I'm not going to drink. And by that day at five o'clock, you're drinking all that stuff that everybody does. But it was very stutter step until I had been reading This Naked Mind. I appreciate that book a lot. Don't identify with a lot of it, but something that 
uh, I did take from it was looking at the kind of forbidden fruit aspect of our habit and that so much of the the tension was in the fighting of it while the trying to enjoy it. You know, they talk about the monkey who has his hand reached through the cage, holding on to the banana and he's trying to pull the banana out. So he's stuck, but he won't let go of the banana, that whole tension. And so I kind of, you know, I don't want to say I, I let loose entirely, but I really tried to let go of the guilt and shame around the drinking and just observe it for a while. And of course I still felt bad. I still felt guilt. I still felt shame and all those things. But it was different because I wasn't so actively trying to force myself to not do something I wasn't ready to not do. And so it was kind of this attitude, and I'm not suggesting this to anyone. I'm just telling my story. It was this attitude of, you know, as long as I'm not ready to quit this, I may as well just let myself do it, you know, in a safe way. And, And weirdly, my drinking did get somewhat better during that period. There was less of it when I wasn't fighting it so hard, kind of a paradox. But to catch up to your your question... Halloween, uh, we were outside for, for me, Halloween is a, a big deal, a uh, big deal for me kind of um, spiritually and resetting my, my year internally and uh, thinking about the holidays coming up and all that stuff. And so we were outside. I live in the country. I've got a big fire pit out there. We had a fire for hours and made music and drank beer. Honestly, I had a great night, including some, you know, moderate to heavy drinking that never crossed the line where I was going to be hung over or whatever. And uh, I went to bed not anything remarkable, but I had a dream that night at the risk of sounding however this sounds, but I had a dream that I was going to this conference, which I actually am going to in real life coming up in May. And so I was at the conference that I'm looking forward so much to going to this conference that's around entrepreneurship and business and motivation and just being as best as you can and having the most awesome life you can. And in the dream, it was totally different and ended up not being about that at all. But I woke up knowing, okay, this conference is real. This is something that's actually going to happen. I've been looking forward to forever, half a year at that point. And there was something about knowing I'm in control now of who I show up as at that time. And some of that was a, a clean motivation, I would say, of truly wanting to be my best. A lot of it was ego motivation of, I want to be my best so that people think the best of me. I'm not proud of that, but it's true. So I mentioned that to say that you can use all kinds of motivations. Motivations don't even necessarily have to be pure or particularly healthy, quote unquote, for them to be used for your goals. So I was able to use my vanity, you know, of, well, I, I, I want to be in better shape or I want to be sharper. I want to be more impressive to these people I want to impress, even though I wish I didn't feel that way. All of these things went into something that just clicked in my brain. And I said, I'm not going to drink anymore. And I'd be lying if I said I hadn't had those moments before, I thought, but it's kind of like they say with love, like, oh, when when you meet the one, you'll know. And it's like, well, I thought I knew five different times, but this time I know, like, I know, no, like this is different. And that's how I felt with that. And uh, I don't take anything for granted. It's one day at a time for sure. And I have temptations, but just something about back to your early point that focusing on who do I want to be? Who do I want to show up in a, as in life? And at the risk of being morbid when, you know, I'm going to die one day and hopefully I'll be cognizant of the fact that it's about to happen. And what kind of life do I want to look back on? Not in a shaming way, not in a feel bad about yourself way, but just it's an amazing, empowering thing to say, even, you know, at quote unquote, you know, the middle of my life at 36, realistically, the way medicine is going, I'm going to live with my family history. I mean, if I died at 80, that would be dying young. I'm going to live to 85, 90, 95, 100, maybe more. And, you know, this is really early for me to be able to say, man, I took the helm, you know, I took the horns of my life. And the thing for me with drinking, there's all kinds of other problems in my life and things I don't feel in control of, but alcohol was the one variable that infects every single other variable in my life. Every single thing from my sleep to my finances, my relationship, everything down to my my sex life and my poop life, every part of my life (laughs) is affected. And yes, your poops get better when you stop drinking. All of it was dramatically impacted by this. So even if I didn't know how to fix anything else in my life, which is, I felt very out of control in my life for my whole life, well before I started drinking. But every one of these things that I felt out of control of could only get better. Even if I had no idea how to approach it or fix it, it could only get better if I removed alcohol as a variable, because that one variable was dramatically impacting every other variable. And something about that really hit me that night in that dream and processing it the next morning. And 
I, I luckily have not had any alcohol since then. Wow. I love that story. And I love that you gave us all the context leading up to it because you said even like, I may have had those moments where I thought this is it, but this, you know, there's something about not even having the right words to explain that feeling and it being more of a, of a feeling than of logic or something that really makes sense. And I'm just really, you know, glad to hear that something clicked and that it's given you some momentum. I agree with you, whatever the motivation is in order to get the ball rolling on anything. I think that they're all valid. If I'm being honest, we need to not judge ourselves on that either. And just in terms of, you know, you were in this relationship that was, you know, six months ish, maybe new when you decided to quit, like I'm assuming your life did have to pivot a little bit. How, how has it been since October? And I know you shared at the beginning that you're being supported, which is amazing, but has it, have you been writing the pink cloud or how has it been? Yeah, good question. So this is a part where, again, I have to say this is not advice. Um, I'm, I'm a little leery of telling my story because I don't know that my advice right now, would, if it were to be advice, I don't think that it would be good advice. Everybody needs to do what's right for them. I haven't gone to meetings and I don't feel bad about that. I was about to say I do. I realize I did, but I don't now. I may get to the point where I feel that I need to. Um, but as far as what I'm doing, I do connect regularly. It needs to be daily. Um, right now it's not, but I connect regularly with sober people that I know in real life. I have a very good friend um, who's been sober, not an AA guy, but just, he's been alcohol free for, for four years or more now. Talk to him a lot about it. He was a resource even when I was trying to get alcohol free. Cafe RE was instrumental really, even though I'd been on and off a few times and I'd done the whole thing where I felt shame because I joined it and then drank and felt like I didn't belong and, you know, all that stuff. I'd been uh, done those things. But that was instrumental in getting me to a point of being in, again, away from the binary, you know, all or nothing. Oh, you drank, you're going to die thinking uh, into a more supportive kind of place. Even when I thought maybe that was too soft and maybe that wasn't the right thing for me, it ended up really helping. So those are some of the, the aspects of my life that are, are different. But as far as how I feel, you know, it has been freaking tough. So my, in September, uh, my fian- one of my fiance's family members was the, the trigger warning, auto violence. Uh, she was hit and killed while walking uh, by a car. Right now, both of her grandparents are in uh, just shy of critical condition in the hospital with coronavirus. There's been all kinds of other stuff. I'm dealing with PTSD from a police-related event a year ago. It, it has not been awesome, but all of the not awesome things have nothing to do with not drinking. And all of them would be so much worse if I would drink, if I was drinking. And, uh, you know, to sort of commandeer your podcast for just a second, what I would want to get across to somebody who's listening is a lot of your fear about quitting drinking is that it's going to be hard. And you're right. It is going to be hard, probably. I don't want to speak for everyone. But the thing you don't realize is how hard your life is as a drinker right now. You're just used to it. You are used to it and it is so much harder than you realize because the fact is, as if you're somebody who's ever had a problem with alcohol of some kind, being sober is going to be hard. Drinking is going to be hard. And there's the whole thing about choose your hard, choose your kind of difficult. And not drinking hard is not only so much easier than drinking was, but it has all the opportunity, all the opportunity to move your life forward, to get the things you want are much easier if you're not drinking something that clouds your judgment and makes you slow and tired and anxious and uncomfortable all the time. So to answer your question again, it's been great. You know, I started a podcast. I said my favorite way to answer when somebody asked me how I'm doing, I said, it's a mixed bag, but there's a lot of good stuff. And I I have a wonderful fiance as of a few days ago. I'm emotional because I had known that I was going to ask her, but I wasn't going to do it anytime soon, but it really looked like she was going to lose her grandmother. Um, and that may happen. And we really wanted her to know that um, Kendra was going to be taken care of emotionally and have a real partner and that this was lasting. So I had moved that timeline up and I'm incredibly grateful for her. I have wonderful parents. I have a job that is both extremely toxic and very supportive and loving. I am uh, pursuing, I'm actually being pursued by my dream job right now to work for a company that's the biggest online music retailer in the country. I'm going to be going up to 
Indiana to interview for that shortly. Uh, there's all kinds of good things happening. And, and just because you quit drinking doesn't guarantee you great things are going to happen. But the things you do have, you'll be so much more able to be grateful for. You'll be so much happier. I just, I guarantee it. That's the biggest thing I would tell myself if I could go back and tell myself anything is that everything you think this thing is giving you is a lie. And I know that's hard to believe, but even though it helped me a little bit in the beginning, it was making my life so much harder and so much worse. And all the things that I thought I was getting from it, that it was giving me this relief, this relief from anxiety, this whatever, you know, maybe for a couple of drinks, but after that, it was just making everything so much harder. And uh, if you knew how little you were giving up in comparison to what you're going to get, you would quit right now. Promise. Yeah. Everything that we think that it's giving us, not only is it not, but it's at a point, it's going to be taking that away, which is the hardest part of it as well. And, you know, I'm sorry you're going through all of this hard stuff. And I'm happy that you're also, you know, you are living life. You're also receiving amazing things. Like this is what being alive is, is the full spectrum and life happening on life's terms and us being able to show up for it. I feel like, you know, we think that there's not enough room for the bad emotions. Like when we have something scary, we want to run away from it because we feel like it can't fit inside of us. And I find mm -hmm. that I need to learn to believe that there is enough room inside of me for the bad stuff too, which it sounds, I don't know how that sounds, but I can hold it in and process it out instead of wanting to just run from it and kind of take the shortcut because at some point we will have to deal with it. So I'm just, I'm really grateful that you are being honest and you know, accepting and understanding that sobriety isn't just the key to success. It is just basically the key to life and life equals a lot, a mixed bag, like you said. So I just, I'm just really grateful and we could keep talking forever, Joshua. It's been a really nice conversation, but we do have to reach the rapid fire round. So I have a few questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So these, if you can answer in 30 seconds or less, that would be great. And the first one is, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Mm, mint chocolate chip. I feel like that is the most popular answer on here. I'm just going to say that. It's the balance. You have the softness of the ice cream, the crispy, crunchy thing. I don't have some like soft, mushy, brownie garbage. I got to like sink my teeth into slowly. And then you get <laughs> the sweet and the peppermint and the bitter. It's, it's just the whole, it's the whole package. What book are you reading right now, if any? I am reading, so I read strangely. I kind of like dip, I'm super ADHD'd out. So I dip in and out of things. I'm reading Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, the oral history of The Office, because I'm an enormous fan of The Office. Mm -hmm. um, that was compiled by Brian Baumgartner, aka Kevin Malone. I'm also reading Robert Greene's The Daily Laws because I'm an obnoxious like motivation guy now. So that's, he's the guy who wrote the 12 laws or the 48 laws of power. And so this is kind of daily tweaking of your perspective to help understand how people actually operate. And the last one is I'm reading uh, 12 and a half by uh, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's actually the entrepreneur that's running the conference that I'm going to. And uh, it's leveraging the emotional ingredients necessary for business success. So it's all about emotional intelligence. I've seen Gary V speak live and this was oh my God. five years ago and it wasn't, he wasn't, it, the event wasn't his event, but he was a keynote at somewhere where I was and it was amazing. Well, I have to say, Gary Vee is the reason that I know Kendra. Gary Vee is the reason that I'm getting this job opportunity because I took, I am the reason because I took his advice and actually did the game. I made the content and started sharing my perspective heavily a couple of years ago. And so many opportunities are coming from it. So I have to always express gratitude for uh, what he encouraged me to do. Oh, that's awesome. All right, Joshua. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you're wondering if you need to say adios to booze. Hard and simple truth, my friends. Joshua, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for sharing. I just, I wish you peace and health and love. I know that it's a hard time right now. So just thank you so much for gifting us some of your time and sharing your story. And thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Have a good day. Very well, Team RE. That wraps our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you on this Valentine's Day that you are everything you need and that you are enough and that you are loved and that you are worthy. 
I truly hope that this path is taking you to places where you are only learning on how to better love yourself, just as you are. You are whole and complete, and you deserve a peaceful life. All right, that's my mom pep talk for today during a very hallmarky holiday. <laughs> Be well and keep rooting for yourself the way that I'm always rooting for you. Recovery Elevator, lighten up. Let's have a great day. Let's have a great week. And I'll talk to you all next Monday. I love you. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? response is always the same. Burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. thinking.